This is the Collector Car Podcast, the home for the auto enthusiast. Join Greg Stanley as he applies over 25 years of insights and analytical experience to the collector car market. He will interview the experts and throw in some fun stuff as well. Do you find it challenging working on your collector car? Advantage Lifts has the solution for you with their selection of two and four post lifts. Advantage's two post lifts provide an unparalleled amount of versatility. Each wheel can spin freely and be worked on individually, and you'll have full access to those hard-to-reach parts of the undercarriage. And best of all, Advantage's two post lifts are ready to ship now. Get $100 off by using code TCCP for the Collector Car Podcast. Again, that's TCCP. You can find your perfect Advantage lift by calling 763-300-5730. That's 763-300-5730. And don't forget to use the promotional coupon code TCCP. CCP. Hey, it's Greg Stanley. If you're listening to this podcast, you know I love everything automotive. This passion has expanded to include being a car specialist consultant for RM Sotheby's. So if you need assistance buying or consigning a collector car at any one of our online or live auctions, including Scottsdale, Amelia Island, or Monterey, you can reach one of our car specialists at rmsotheby's.com or you can email me directly at gstanley at rmsotheby's.com. Hey there, and welcome to the Collector Car Podcast. Hey, it's Greg Stanley, and for this week, I have the final installment of 100 Cars That Changed the World. Now, if you haven't listened to the previous episodes that cover multiple decades, ever since, I think, 1880, uh, you can go back and look in the description of this episode to link on to uh, hear those other episodes. So this one is 1970 to the present, so this is the last one. And we have a lot of information to cover here, so I'm just going to go ahead and dive right into it. So not all of these cars are collector cars. Not all of these cars are in Haggerty's database, so I don't have the percent change or the average value for some of these cars. Honestly, these cars were important for one reason or another. Doesn't mean they're rare. Doesn't mean they're collectible. Anything like that. So I've got what I've got. (laughs) So unless I say otherwise, all of the photos that you see, if you're watching this on YouTube are from RM Sotheby's. You will see some gaps towards the end as I couldn't find a photo of a 1973 Honda, maybe. <laughs> but uh, all the, I'll have as much as I can, and I'll throw in some cool pictures as well. Now, all the descriptions, unless I say otherwise, are from Haggerty. I did pull some from a book called The 100 Cars That Changed the World. That's where I got the idea for this multi-episode podcast. So thanks to them. Uh, so let's kick it off. The first one is 1970 Datsun 240Z. Now this is again from Haggerty. Prior to 1969, the impression most Americans had of Japanese cars mirrored those currently held of Chinese-made toys, mainly cheap junk. In the fall of 1969, the Datsun 240Z changed those opinions instantly and forever. Beautifully, Let's see, beautiful styling combined with a smooth 2.4 liter overhead cam, straight six, and independent suspension made the Z go and handle as well as it looked. Zero to 60 came up in 7.8 seconds, and a 125 mile per hour top speed was better than a Porsche 911T and a Jaguar E-Type for the day for about half the price. Needless to say, the Z clobbered competition from the likes of Alfa Romeo, Fiat, Opel, Triumph, and MG. So think about that right now. This car was faster than the 911T and the Jaguar E-Type and just the stuff I rattled off. Uh, overhead cam, straight six, independent rear suspension. It had a five-speed. That's all the stuff we want in a car today. Rear-wheel drive, and this was back in 1970. 
All right, the one-year change on these, this is interesting. I'm going to have to do a podcast specifically on this. Minus 4.2%. So in the latest year, the Datsun has peaked. As I go through this episode, you'll notice that there are other cars that have either flattened or peaked and are now declining. So I want to do an episode maybe called Downshifting Market Trends. Have we reached the peak? I think we have. I think Monterey will be a big test for the market as a whole. So we will see. Now, here's why it's down in the last year. The latest three years is up 40.4%. And the latest five years is up 54.5%. So it's been going up for a long time. It's hit the roof and it's gone down over the last year. Now, whether or not that continues remains to be seen. The average value, which is a car in number three condition per Haggerty's valuation guide, is $33,800. All right, the next one is also from 1970. It's the 1970 Land Rover Range Rover. Now, when Rover introduced the Range Rover in 1970, it combined the luxury of the company's saloons with the unparalleled off-road ability of the workhorse Land Rover. In doing so, it essentially created a new category vehicle that we now know as the SUV. It has been a trendsetter in that segment ever since. Rover already had the aluminum 3.5 liter V8 bought from Buick in 1965, and Range Rovers have always been V8 powered, except for turbo diesel options from 1984. They feature permanent four-wheel drive, front-wheel disc brakes, coil springs all around with self-leveling suspension, separate chassis with alloy body panels and four doors from 1981 a five-speed gearbox replaced the basic four-speed in 1983 wow that took a long time and only automatic transmissions have been available since 2002. now the one-year change for a land rover range rover from 1970 is up 10.1 percent latest one year latest three years up 56.8 percent and latest five years up 59.9 percent and the average value is just under $25,000. Now the next one, this one surprised me a little bit. I don't know that I would have picked it as one of the 100 uh, most important cars ever. It's the 1970 Pontiac Firebird. Now this would also include the Camaro. Let's see what it has to say here. So for 1970, the new Pontiac Firebird was delayed until February thanks to tooling troubles and a strike at GM. Meanwhile, Insurance rates soared for high-horsepower cars, and there was a crackdown on performance advertising. None of this bode well for Pontiac, which was a performance brand. It was little consolidation that the new 1970 Pontiac Firebird, when it finally appeared, was a significant improvement over the previous model, which I actually liked a little bit more. Its clean and elegant lines would also remain in production for 12 years, the SD Super Duty 455 models would be the last really fast car in the GM stable. Uh, let's see, as because of all the economic things going on, the gas crunch of 1974. All right, let's see. I think this was actually from the book. Yes, this was from the book. Performance took a dive in the 70s, but the Pontiac Firebird, with its available big V8s, reason, reasonable sixes, and relatively nimble handling was a bright spot in a dark age. I guess that's why it kind of kept the muscle car era going for a little while longer during the oil embargo. All right, the one-year change up strong, 21%. Three-year also up 21%. And the five-year change up 27.1%. Average value just under $29,000. All right, this is the one that I, had no, I have no pictures for <laughs> and I have no stats for. The 1973 Honda Civic. 
So this is from the book 100 Cars That Changed the World. The fun-to-drive and reliable 1973 Honda Civic brought the front-wheel drive economy car into the American mainstream. That's why it's an important car. Its timing couldn't have been better with the oil embargo hitting not long after the Civic's introduction. Honda claimed 30 miles per gallon, and it couldn't build cars fast enough. Now, like I said, this one was not in Haggerty's database, but I wanted to make a note of this. Surprisingly, there are a ton of 1973 Honda motorcycles in the database. Someone really put all their efforts in the motorcycles. So if you like motorcycles, go and check it out. But let's get that uh, 1973 Honda Civic in there, can we? All right, the next one's an iconic car by all measures, the 1974 Lamborghini Countach. I really could just stop there. I wouldn't have to say anything else, but I will continue. Lamborghini unveiled a prototype of its revolutionary Countach supercar at the 1971 Geneva Motor Show. With styling by Gandini, who already had the Mura to his credit, the exotic 5-liter V12-powered wedge dubbed the LP500 had people talking, enough that Lamborghini moved forward with production, and the Countach LP400 road car debuted for 1974. The Lamborghini Countach was, quite literally, the poster child for 1980 supercar excesses, and while enthusiasts will forever argue about which generation was the greatest, the model as a whole will forever be recognized as an automotive icon. I know I've said this many times before, but the Countach was actually the first supercar I ever saw in person, and it was new at the time because I'm not young. Uh, it was 1983. It was a white Countach with red interior. I had ridden my bike up to the local Kmart in Jacksonville, Florida, and there was a place called the Racket, Racket Power, which was a racket club, which that was really big in the 80s, and it was parked in the parking lot. I had a heart attack when I saw it. Uh, so I have, a, I have a soft spot for Countaches. The one-year change is up 18.5%. The three-year change is up 23.1%. Now this is interesting. The five-year change, Countaches are actually down 20%. At least the uh, 1974 Lamborghini is. Now the average value is just under $1 million. All right, next. I couldn't believe this. This one was not in the database or I did not have any pictures uh, from R.M. Sotheby's. It's the 1976 Volkswagen Golf GTI. Now, again, this is from the book. The, in 1974, Volkswagen made a historic turn from air-cooled rear-mounted engines to water-cooled front engines and front-wheel drive for the compact Golf. The GTI helped create the hot hatch segment and its combination of sporty moves and family car practically practicality proved popular. So this was the first hot hatch, which is why it's one of the most important, one of the 100 cars that changed the world. All right, next, again, no data on this one either, no pictures, and you'll understand why here shortly. The 1977 Chevrolet Impala. Now, why in the world would that car had any impact on the world would be my question if I were you. All right, from the book, even before the 1973 oil embargo, it's amazing how many of these things were impacted because of the oil embargo. General Motors had decided that its full-size cars were too big. Development of trimmer cars was already in progress when the energy crisis made downsizing imperative. The 1977 full-size Impala was 10 inches shorter and more than 600 pounds lighter than the 1976 model, yet interior room remained nearly the same. GM's first downsizing was was a success with Chevy's big car sales increasing 56.1% over the previous year. 
1977 downsizing proved that Americans would accept smaller cars. So that's why it changed the world. All right, next. Actually, the next four, I think. I don't have pictures on. All right, next, the 1980 AMC Eagle. The AMC Eagle was a clever idea from a gutsy company in dire straits. Again, this is from the book. AMC's Jeep division combined its four-wheel drive expertise with AMC's compact Concorde car to create a forerunner of today's crossover SUVs. The Eagle merged the comfort and refinement of a car with the security of an SUV's four-wheel drive. I do think this is one that needs to be on everyone's radar. I think it's a wagon, it's four-wheel drive, it's pretty cool. Uh, it should be going up in value. And they also had a Woody version, which is hilarious. All right, the next one's the 1982 Honda Accord. Again, from the book, it can be argued that the 1982 Honda Accord changed the way that Americans thought about Japanese cars. By this time, many car shoppers had heard good things about Honda, but the cars were still a little too small, a little too modestly powered, and a little too, well, Japanese-looking. Not sure what that means exactly. That all changed from 1982 with the new Honda Accord. I had a friend whose parents bought like a 1984 Honda Accord, and it was really cool. Actually, I, not cool. It was iconic, I guess is the best way to put it. And my band teacher, Mr. Meese, he had one. All right, the next one's the 1983 Ford Thunderbird. From the book, Ford had dabbled with an era look for the 1979 Mustang, but it was with the redesigned 1983 Thunderbird that Ford committed to aerodynamic styling. The Aerobird not only looked streamlined, it was aerodynamic with a 0.35 coefficient of drag that was the lowest of any of the big three's two-door car. So being their first stab at being aerodynamic, that's why it changed the world. All right, if you listen to my 19 cars that were depreciation-proof, this next one was an honorable mention. The 1984 Dodge Caravan. Yes, you heard that right. A minivan is on my list for future collectible, and it's also on this list for cars that changed the world. From the book, the Dodge Caravan, along with the similar Plymouth Voyager, combined the expansive interior of a van with a front-drive sedan platform. The result was car-like to drive and had a low step-in height, yet could hold up to eight passengers and luggage. It created an entire new market that continues to today. So raise your hand right now if you have a minivan. <laughs> There's a lot of you out there. I do not. I never had one. Uh, not to say I never will. All right, next is the 1986 Ford Taurus. Again, no Haggerty trends or pictures. Uh, let's see. From the book, in 1986, Ford introduced its daring Taurus sedan and wagon. The Taurus had European styling and driving dynamics and was one of the company's most successful products, and it forever changed the midsize, midsize sedan market. I remember taking a 1988 Ford Taurus. The whole family jumped into the wagon because our van died, and we went from Jacksonville, Florida, up to New York City for Thanksgiving. Oh, no, I'm sorry, up to Vermont for Christmas. All of us jam-packed in there. All right, I will have some cool pictures here in a minute, including pictures of Vipers, McLarens, and Ferraris. So stay tuned if you're on the YouTube channel. Next is the 1990 Lexus LS400. This, I cannot believe, hasn't been called a collectible yet. From the book, because it's not in Haggerty's database, Toyota introduced its upmarket Lexus brand for 1990. The LS400 challenged the Mercedes-Benz S-Class and other European luxury sedans, but for significantly less money. The luxury car market changed forever, 
with the entry of Lexus. Very sedate cars, but very well built. All right, let's get to one of the sports cars here, or sporty cars here. The 1990 Mazda Miata MX-5. The Mazda Miata moved much of the enthusiast community near to tears when it was introduced in the fall of 1989 for the 1990 model year. Few thought we would ever see a British roadster reimagined as a competent and dependable yet utterly charming automobile. Colors were originally limited to red, white, and blue, and several option packages that included niceties like air conditioning, power windows, and seat-mounted speakers. A nice removable top was offered and as was an auto box, an automatic. But this option mercifully proved to be unpopular. Few people were able to buy a 1990 Miata at anywhere near sticker price. Now this is all from Haggerty and they do have some market trends. So the one year it's flat. So this is another one. Has it peaked yet? Three years of 23.1% and five years, listen to this, of 89.8%. The average value is still 8,400 bucks. So you could get a really nice 1990 Mazda Miata, probably in mint shape for 15 grand, you know? So get them now. All right, the next one's a 1991 Ford Explorer. I'm not gonna talk too much about this. I think everybody knows why this is a car slash SUV that changed the world. From the book, prior to the Explorer, small SUVs were relatively cramped inside and crude in nature. The Explorer made the minivans, I'm sorry, the Explorer made the SUVs mainstream. All right, back to cool cars here. The 1992 Dodge Viper RT10. Now this is from Haggerty. Originally the work of a small crew under close direction from then Chrysler President Bob Lutz and design chief Tom Gale, the Viper became iconic even when it was only a concept one first unveiled at the Detroit Auto Show in 1989. Today, these first Vipers are worth having because they lead a line of now legendary supercars, provided the most bite with the Viper in its most savage, simple form, and serve to remind us of a time when Chrysler broke out from the K-Car convention. Now, this had the big V10 8-liter engine, which had been originally designed for Dodge truck duty, but Chrysler looked to Lamborghini for help in designing a new aluminum block and heads with some of its parts, including the two valve per cylinder pushrod design carried over. In these first Vipers, the engine was rated at 400 horsepower and 400 pound-feet of torque with an impressive red line of 6,000 RPM. The dash to 60 came in less than five seconds. The top speed was originally 164 miles per hour. So this is pretty interesting. Here we go. Only 285 Vipers were delivered in 1992, all red with gray interior, with more colors and features added the following year. So let's see here. In 1993, there were only a little over 1,000. 1994 was a little over 3,000. In 1995 was a little over 1,500. So you really want to have the first year if you're looking for the pure collectible with as low mileage as possible. Now the one year, this is another one that's declining, down 15% latest one year. The three year up, well here's why, up 100.6%, and the five year up 121.1%. So you can expect a little decline right now. The average value in number three condition is $64,800. All right, the next one. Now this is another sport ute, but then we'll get to the McLaren. The 1993 Jeep Grand Cherokee. From the book, as SUVs became more popular 
in the 90s, Jeep decided to bring out a larger, more upmarket version of its Cherokee for 1983. Basically, this was the first luxurious sport ute. All right, next is the 1994 McLaren F1. I don't need to say anything else about that, but I will. The McLaren F1 stands among the greatest sports cars of all time, a revolutionary vehicle that still sets the bar for supercars. The brainchild of Gordon Murray, the renowned designer and technical director of the McLaren Formula One team, the F1 was produced from 1994 to 1998 by McLaren Automotive, a spinoff of the racing team. With a top speed of 240.1 miles per hour, the F1 became the fastest production car in history, a record it would hold until 2005. Now, these are just incredible and iconic. Uh, this description was from Haggerty, so I do have some valuation trends. Latest one year up 5.1%. I can't imagine more than one or two have sold. Latest three years up 29.1%, and latest five years up 48.7%. The average value in number three condition, get this, is $17 million. What was fun is while I was looking for pictures online on RM Sotheby's, I did a search through their database, and there was one that was sold, I want to say it was 2001, and it sold for like $1.7 million, which is a ton of money, but when you consider that's a tenth of what they're selling for now, that was a pretty astute buy. All right, the next one. These will be pretty quick because they're not that exciting, honestly but they are uh, pretty important. The 1996 Toyota RAV4. From the book, the RAV4 offered SUV benefits with car-like ride and handling. Now this is one of the first little utes, little sport utes, which is why it made the list. All right, the one after that is the 1997 General Motors EV1. Now I won't get my facts totally correct here, but I believe they had about 50 of these. They could lease them out. And when the program ended, they actually destroyed the cars because they didn't want to have liability. They didn't want to have to make parts for it and I believe one or two survived and I think there's a movie called Who Killed the Electric Car where it goes into it in depth but it's important and iconic because it was one of the first if not the first electric vehicle that was used actually on the streets by regular people all right after that is the 1999 Lexus RX 300 now this is one of the first luxury crossover SUVs uh, let's see from the book the RX showed that a vehicle could have space high seating position, and rugged appeal of an SUV, but with greater comfort and fuel economy. So that's why it's on the list. Uh, right after that is the 2000 Toyota Prius. Again, from the book, the first generation Prius introduced the world of hybrids, the world to hybrids, although it was the second generation that debuted in 2004 that normalized the technology and sold an impressive volume. So it's really the first hybrid car, even though you don't really hear much about them nowadays uh, they're still out there they just don't get as much press as say a tesla which will be coming up here shortly all right next is the 2005 bugatti veyron back to cool cars uh, from Haggerty. descriptors such as world's fastest and the 100 1000 plus horsepower club are sure to get you waved into the most visible and privileged parking spots at your local cars and coffee event but they just scratched the surface in the bugatti veyron story Everything else on this car's data sheet from the engine specs to MSRP is as breathtaking now as when the car came to market in 2005. When the Bugatti name was revived by Volkswagen in 1998, its first production project was a mid-engine supercar that was surpassed previously accepted street supercar boundaries in price, performance, and sanity. 
Prototypes were running in 2003, with the first production examples leaving the French factory in 2005. The Veyron's carbon fiber cockpit cell was attached to a unique 8-liter W-configured 16-cylinder 64-valve motor that utilizes four turbochargers to push enough boost through its plenum for 1,001 horsepower upon the car's introduction with more powerful additions following. This power was sent to all four wheels via a six-speed sequential gearbox propelling the car to a 250-plus mile-per-hour top speed and railing all of this in is Brembo carbon brakes as well as an honest-to-goodness air brake that deploys out of the rear bodywork. All right, again, this is interesting. The one-year trend, it's flat. The three-year trend is plus 5.6%, and the five-year trend is up 15.2%, and the average value is just under $1.2 million. Okay, a few more here. Next is the 2005 Ford Mustang GT. This one surprised me. So this is from the book. Uh, I don't have a descriptor from Haggerty, but I do have uh, the data. So from the book, styling echoed Mustangs of the past, yet it was fresh and modern. The redesigned Mustang was better in almost every way compared to the car it replaced and proved that the pony car wasn't dead. So that's very important because there's no more Pontiac. Uh, Camaro took a break. Uh, so it's basically the Mustang as the only pony car out there for a little while. And the 2005 refresh, refresh redesign uh, hit it out of the park to keep pony cars alive. That's why it made it into this list. The one-year change is up 23.4%. The three-year change is up 24.5% as well as the five-year change. Average value, number three condition, is $11,600. All right, the next is the 2012 Tesla Model S. Uh, I just put performance, dot, 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 period. This thing's insane. Basically, the Model S got car guys and gals excited about electric cars. That's why it's on the list. It is just unbelievable. All right, next is the 2013 Ferrari La Ferrari. A decade after the introduction of the game-changing Enzo, Ferrari introduced the next addition to the company's hypercar dynasty that includes the 288 GTO, the F40, and the F50. And like the Enzo before it, the new car only went to Ferrari's preferred clients. Introduced at the Geneva Motor Show in 2013, the LaFerrari, horrible name, immediately came up against the Porsche 918 and the McLaren P1. The three were inevitably compared and contrasted thanks to their high price, savage performance, wild looks, and the fact that all three embraced hybrid powertrain technology independently of one another. Unlike, unlike in most hybrids, though, these cars exploited electric power primarily to add to performance and enhance the internal combustion engine, not to increase fuel economy. Other aspects of the car were developed through Ferrari's FXX racing program. All right, this is on the list because it was the hybridization of the supercars. Now, let's see, the one-year trend up 31.8%, the three-year trend up 26.1%, and the five-year trend up 2.4%, average value around $3.4 million. What is really fascinating is all three of these came out at the same time. If I remember correctly, they weren't that far off in price initially or horsepower. Um, and what's interesting is where they're falling now. So if I had to put them from a market valuation standpoint, the LaFerrari is by far in number one position. The, the three-year, I'm sorry, the average value in number three condition is $3.4 million. For the Porsche 918, it's probably around 
1.2, 1.3. So like a third of the price of the LaFerrari and the McLaren's lower than that. And the McLaren's a little easier to understand because when the 720S came out, it actually was a faster car than the P1 and looked a lot like it and it cost less. Now, apparently I was just talking to a McLaren expert. They stated that there's a battery update for the P1 that will allow it to perform as fast, maybe a hair faster than the 720. So that's why, that's one of the reasons why I think the P1 is not appreciated as much as say like the LaFerrari. All right, we just got a few more here. The 2015 Dodge Challenger Hellcat made the list. Uh, so basically it made the list because it's the most powerful muscle car ever. I don't know that it changed the world, but that's the reasoning for why it's on the list. The one-year change is up 1.9%. The three-year change is actually down 7%. And the five-year change, it's down 7%. Part of that's because after the Hellcat, you had the Demon. And the Demon was faster. It's made strictly for drag racing. So I know some of the folks that got, bought the Hellcat knew they were upset when the Demon came out. Average value of the Hellcat in number three condition is just under $46,000. All right, the next one is the 2017 Chevrolet Bolt EV. Uh, this is on the list because it was the first fun-to-drive and reasonably priced electric car. Uh, let's see, two more. The 2019 Jaguar I-Pace. Now, this is from the book. The 2019 Jaguar I-Pace was the first all-electric, all-wheel-drive crossover SUV from an established manufacturer, and I did not know that until I read this. The I-PACE combined two trends, the rise of pure electric vehicles and the shift from sedans to SUVs. All right, the last one on the list, which is interesting, is the 2020 Chevrolet Corvette. So the switch to mid-engine made the Corvette a supercar at a budget car price. So that is why it made the list. I don't know that it changed the world, but according to this book, it did, so I'm going to go with it. So as always, thanks for listening, and I will talk to all of you next week. Thanks for listening to the Collector Car Podcast. Don't forget to give us a nice rating on iTunes and be sure to follow us on Instagram and everywhere else at the Collector Car Podcast.